Thanks for coming tonight. It's always good to be with you. <clears throat> We're going to get to Hebrews 13, 12, 12 in just a minute. So if you want to find that or, or get ready for that, that's where we'll be. So let me ask you, how many of you, how many of you want to live just a really strong, vibrant, faithful Christian life following the Lord all the time? How many want to do that? So you want to do that. Okay, that's what I thought. How many of you, though, find that that's really not so easy to do all the time? That it's actually kind of, well, difficult, right? I mean, there are so many distractions, aren't there? Things that just get us off the road and throw us for a loop. And, you know, some of them are just, you know, we're just pursuing our own selfish goals, right? So, kind of our fault. Other things, you know, they're actually good things, but, but they distract us too. And then, of course, there's all those challenges of life, right? You know, there's the personal ones. You know, there's a disease, and maybe it's just a simple thing, and it throws you off, or maybe it's really serious and life-crushing. And all of a sudden, here come the doubts, and here come the challenges, and and you think, well, where's my faith, and what am I going to do, right? And then you just, you know, you turn on the news, and you wonder where we're going and what's going on. And is there ever going to be peace? And is, is justice going to prevail? And, and when will that be? And, and, and could it please hurry up? Or has God forgotten? So it's not so easy, everybody, to live this Christian faith. And here we show up here on Sunday night, and this is all very nice, and we're worshiping, but off we go. You know, when we leave here in a little while and into another week, and, and there we have to live out our faith, and it's hard. Well, the author of Hebrews was writing to a group of people who were in danger of sort of walking away from their faith in Jesus Christ, too, kind of going backwards. And the author writes to them throughout this book about maintaining that faith and why would you do that and and then comes to chapter 12 and lays down one of the most foundational principles in spiritual growth and spiritual life. And you're familiar with the words, and we'll, we'll talk about them tonight, but just a simple little piece of advice, and maybe if this is all you remember tonight, that'd be fine. But it just says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And that's just it. I mean, it sounds very simple, and it's hard to do, but that, that, there it is. Fix your eyes on Jesus. So that's kind of what we want to talk about tonight, and we'll, we'll fill out a few other verses around that this evening, but that's found in Hebrews chapter 12, so if you want to turn there, let's think about this for a few minutes and, and this wonderful piece of spiritual advice from this author. Hebrews 12, I'm just going to read the first three verses, that's it. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, who endured such opposition from sinful people, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that's 
the word of the Lord for us tonight. And it's a good one. So I said fix your eyes on Jesus, and, and we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to get there. But, but just for a moment, what I really want you to take to heart now as we begin is that just very last phrase, that last phrase, consider him. Think of him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. You know, it's been said, and I think I agree with this, that it's much easier to become a Christian than it is to remain one. You know, I mean, sometimes the way can just be very difficult, as we've already mentioned, and, and, and it, perhaps it has been for some of you here or folks that you know. There are just all kinds of difficulties and challenges and temptations and disappointments and traumatic experiences, diseases. And those things can really throw us off. And then we mention the world stuff, the crime, maybe the terrorism, the financial downturns. It's just not so easy to maintain this living, vibrant Christian faith. So the word of encouragement for us tonight is, well, consider him. You think of him. Think of him. Our Lord Jesus and the way that he was opposed by sinful people in this world, so that then you will not grow weary or lose heart. Now the author of Hebrews takes that wonderful word of encouragement right there and, 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 and illustrates it with this dynamic and delightful metaphor, which of course is the running of a race. And, of course, it's not just any race that our author has in mind. It's the marathon race of the Olympic Games. Have you turned on the Olympics yet and watched any of that here this weekend? Okay, some of it maybe a little bit going on, but there's so many events, right? But, but, but uh, from the very beginning of the Olympics, sort of the crown jewel of that whole competition was this marathon race. And even in modern times, and I don't know if they do that anymore, but I know when I was younger, in modern times, kind of that, that marathon race was, was held on the last day, right? On the last day. And it would be this kind of, you know, this event for all events of the Olympics, because that was what defined the Olympics, and they would run into the stadium, right? On that final lap, and, and that would be it. That race in the Olympics, of course, is that marathon race is over 26 miles, and it was run, actually, every year in Greece in the first century, through the suburbs and so on like that. But by the time our author is writing about this race in the book of Hebrews, he's writing in probably the 70s A.D., you know, 80s A.D., first century, that Olympic marathon had already been going on for over 700 years. Uh, to be exact, 776 B.C., and the Olympics and the sporting events and the marathon was held in Athens. And then this race, this marathon, through the streets of Athens, Greece, was the defining event of that competition. Now certainly, certainly our author and the audience that he's writing to all knew about this race. I mean, it was the great cultural sporting event of the day. They didn't have 
baseball or football. They didn't have the Super Bowl or anything like that, but they had a race. And they had the Olympic race, the marathon race, and everybody knew about it. Certainly, that's what the author has in mind as he, as he uses this metaphor as an illustration of how then we ought to live our Christian lives. And then he says, okay, it's a race, so run the race with perseverance. And I guess everybody's running a race, right? Yeah, sort of. You know, there, there, there's, a, there's a starting line, and we, we kind of know where we've come from. We have a solid foundation in, in God. He created us in his image and placed us in the families where we've, we've been grown up and so on. So we know sort of that beginning part, and, and we know the end. We kind of can maybe know about the finish line, but, but it's all those in-between times, isn't it? It's the hurdles, and it's the jumps, and it's the water pits, and it's all that kind of stuff from getting from one to the other. So so let's look for just a minute more tonight about how this author develops that image and that metaphor. He's going to say three things. He's going to talk about what we're to do in this race. And secondly, how are we supposed to do it? And then then finally, why should we do this? Right? So kind of what, you know, and then how, and then why. All right? So follow along. Here we go. Now, what are we supposed to be doing? Well, he just kind of told us. I already gave it away. Says, okay, run your race with perseverance. That's what you're supposed to do in the Christian life. Run the race, you know, with endurance. Run it with strength. Run it with energy. Never giving up. Run your race with intentionality. Do it purposefully. Do it with passion and intensity. Now, don't just let life sort of just come at you and, and bowl you over all the time. But Christians, the author says, ought to encounter those obstacles and meet those hurdles and, and jump over them with strength and perseverance. So he says, run that race with perseverance. Now, when I read that again recently, uh, about that challenge as to how to live the Christian life, you know, run with perseverance. I, I couldn't help but think for just a moment about Winston Churchill. Remember Winston Churchill? Some of you, right? Okay, the little ones, you'll get it in history class. It's World War II. Uh, and, and he was that great bulldog of a prime minister, right, from Great Britain. And he famously said during that World War II, he said, we'll fight them on the beaches, We'll fight them in the streets. We'll fight them in the air. We'll never give up. And then right after World War II, Winston Churchill was invited to deliver the commencement address at Harvard University here in the United States. And of course, the place was jammed. Right? Just after World War II and what everybody had gone through and, and of course the whole crowd and everybody knew who Winston Churchill was. And, and so Churchill came to speak on that occasion. All the graduates and the family members and, the, and, and, and friends are all sitting there and of course they're all anticipating this speech from this, from this famous great world leader. And Churchill gets up to speak on this occasion and the speech was only seven words. Is it? He got up and he said, never give up. Never, never give up. 
And that was it. He sat down and everybody clapped and applauded. It maybe was the best graduation speech ever. And you know, I was kind of hoping my high school commencement speaker was seven words. That's it. We just want to leave. But there was a standing ovation. That's all he said. And I, I can kind of hear the author of our text saying pretty much the same thing. Can't you? There are obstacles and, and there are hurdles all around this audience and this church and our community and world. Things that could slow us up. Things that would make us weak. Things that could discourage us. Well, run the race with perseverance. Never. Don't you ever give up, I think the author would say. A more modern illustration of that sort of same thing was the, the coach of North Carolina State's basketball team. Maybe some of you remember Jim Valvano. You remember Jim Valvano? Remember 19, it was 1983 and the North Carolina State college basketball team ended up winning the national championship that year against long odds, very unexpectedly, several close games, a couple of them in overtime. But he will most be remembered for his 1993 speech that he gave at the ESPY Awards, that ESPN Awards. Of course, Jim Valvano uh, contracted a terrible cancer and he eventually died. But one month before he died, he appeared at the ESPY Awards, you know, for the sports awards and so on. And he got up to speak towards the end of that program and he challenged the players that were there and, and all of the other athletes and all of the famous people who were gathered on that occasion with pretty much the same words as Winston Churchill. Maybe some of you remember, and, they, and they're still repeated today, over and over. He got up and he said, don't give up. Don't ever give up. And so our author says, consider him. Think of him. Look at him. Fix your eyes on him. You know, the one who himself endured such opposition so that then you don't grow weary or lose heart. Now, I don't know. I've, I've never tried to run the marathon. Or anybody, is there anybody here who's tried to run a marathon? Okay. All right. Where, where's McGinnis? Is he here? No. Okay. No. All right. Sorry. Uh, he, well, he doesn't run marathons, does he? Yeah, anymore. Five, yeah, that's about as far as I can get. <laughs> After about 5K, I'm done. So I've never tried to do that. But, but they say that if you run the marathon race, you know, this race of over 26 miles, that at some point along the way, you're going to reach the pain barrier. You know, they call it hitting the wall, right? You may know about that. There comes a point, is it at the 15-mile mark or the 18-mile the mark or the 20-mile mark, and you just can't go on any further. You know, your legs are aching, your lungs are burning, your head is beating, and you just can't go on. But, of course, they tell you, right? you, you got to fight through it. I mean, you've you got to keep going. Don't stop. you got to get through that pain barrier, and you got to get to the finish line. Now, I wonder if you've ever sort of reached that point in your Christian life or walk or faith. And, you know, you just, things happen and you just kind of maybe, I don't know, I'm just going to give up. You know, I don't think this marriage is ever really going to work out. I just don't. And I don't think my kid's ever going to straighten up. 
My job is never really going to improve. I'm never really going to get to think to do the things that, that I really want to do. And it just gets tougher. And there you sit. Uh, one of the one of the famous well-known Puritan preachers of the English Protestant Reformation in the 1500s and 1600s was a fellow by the name of John Owen. John Owen. And he said this. He said, it's a sweaty job to make your way all the way to heaven. It's a sweaty job to make that race. And it is, isn't it? It is. I know, of course, there are days of joy and celebration and wonderful family events and things like that where the way that God blesses us and so on. But then, but then, on Monday afternoon or a Wednesday rainy day, the pain barrier comes. Consider him. Run the race with perseverance. Okay, that's what we're supposed to do. Good encouragement. Then the author kind of goes on a little bit and talks a bit about how we're supposed to do this. How are we supposed to do this? Two little pieces of advice here in the text for us to follow. And the first one is this. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, a little bit more literally in the Greek, if you, if you read it really in the Greek, it, it says, laying aside every weight, that is the sin that so in easily entangles. Laying aside every weight. Now I wonder what he's thinking about when he's talking about these weights. Laying that aside, you know, maybe he's thinking about the few extra pounds, you know, around the, around the middle section that we had to get rid of. Well, maybe, I don't think so. He's probably thinking about ankle weights. Yeah, they actually use those in training for races in ancient days. Little bags of sand that they would strap to the ankles and they would run and train and, and get ready for that and waiting for the big day and the big race to come. And so our author continues the illustration and says, okay, everybody, lay aside the weights now. Get those weights off. The sin that's so easily entangled. Now, I wonder, you know, what might be the sins, you know, that are weighing us down? Well, you know, what might they be? Now, certainly, you know, maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, well, it's not really any of those so-called greater sins. I mean, I, I haven't murdered anyone and I'm, I'm not sort of living a life of stealing or anything like that. You know, I wonder, do you ever feel entangled and weighed down in this pursuit of Christ-likeness and holiness? I mean, I do. I do. I certainly thought by the time I got to the age that I'm at now, I would be pretty much spiritually formed and pretty holy and pretty close to God and have life figured out and all that and realize, my goodness, how far from that I really am. Now, there's certainly not time for me to stand here tonight and confess all my stuff, the weights and the things that are on my legs. But how about, how about what the Bible calls malice? You know, negative thoughts, anger, sometimes toward the people that we love, or envy. Oh, there's envy, right? You know, someone who's stronger or 
or more talented or, or maybe more attractive. And, and then there's jealousy and there's competition and, and something kind of bad happens to the other person and you kind of take a little secret delight in that, you know, because you can get ahead a little bit yourself. Self-centeredness distracts me and detracts me from doing what I'm supposed to do for others to help them. I mean, do you have these problems? Do you have these hurdles? I I know I do. And so the author says, laying everything aside, those weights, that sin that so easily entangles. I remember that, uh, that, that story about the, uh, the coal miners in Chile. Remember that one? They were trapped down below. I think that was, that was 2010. 2010, so a few years ago. Uh, 69 days. These, these coal miners were trapped underground. They had air and, and they had water and they had food and so on, but they had to drill this narrow shaft right, and, and bring them up one by one in this special capsule thing. And do you know, I just found this out, do you know that there was one man down there among them who spent almost his whole time down there, you know, those 69 days waiting and so, just in training, just physically training. And he was sort of running in place and he was doing exercises and push-ups and all kinds of things like that. And when they finally brought him up in that capsule, he was fit. He was fit. In fact, I read this. He ran the New York City Marathon 25 days later. That guy did. He didn't win. But he finished. But he he finished the race. It's a sweaty thing to make yourself ready all the way to heaven. Training, training, training. But But then remove those weights. Get them off so that you can run with perseverance. Well, the other little piece of advice is this. Not only laying aside those weights and things like that, but then he says, and here's our phrase, fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus, the the author and the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith in this race. You know, in in the marathon race, at least in ancient times, in ancient Greece, when, when there was no final tape, you know, at, at the finish line that you would run through and break with your chest if, you, if you're finishing in first. They didn't have that. But what they had was they had this very large, tall marble pillar that was placed in the center of the stadium. And it was huge. You could see it from a great distance away. And on that marble pillar was inscribed all of the names of the previous marathon winners. And your name goes on the pillar, and then the next name, the next name, the next name, and so on. Can you see what our author's doing here? The metaphor continues. You're running the race. You're taking the weights off. And then he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Strain forward. Look ahead. Look on the horizon. Look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, because he ran the race before us. He finished the race. He won the race. He modeled how to run the race. And then his name's on the pillar. So look at it. Then he goes on. You know, it wasn't so easy to win that race. But for the joy that was set before him, the joy of winning, what did he do? He endured the cross. He scorned the shame. And he kept going. What opposition he endured along the way, everybody, from sinful people. I mean, they almost got him when he was a baby. 
Herod the Great. And the family had to escape to Egypt. And, and then the first time that he opens his mouth in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, they want to take him outside and throw him over a cliff. This is his hometown. He has hypocritical people following him all around just for the bread that he provides. And, and then when that stops, they desert him and they leave. He sets his face toward Jerusalem to jump, as it were, right into the lion's mouth, the Roman Empire. And, and there he's betrayed and he's denied and he's beaten and he's mocked and he's eventually crucified. Look to him. Fix your eyes on him as you run your race. Keep looking at him, this author and this perfecter of our faith. Some of you might know me a little bit, but I guess if I do have a fault or a sin, it's, it's, it's too much love for the game of baseball, I guess, is my... All right, my wife would say I have other more serious faults, but I do like baseball, and of course I do like Yankee baseball. So I'm sorry to say that. We're, we're now waiting for next year, so that's what we're doing. Uh, but I, did, I, I saw an article uh, a couple weeks ago that, where they polled all these baseball journalists, and they were, they were taking a poll to kind of to find out who, who's the greatest baseball player of all time. And, I, of course, I was interested to know how that would end up. You know, that was kind of interesting. So I, do you know how it ended up? The, the vote came in, all these baseball journalists and so on were polled, and, and they voted that Willie Mays, Willie Mays, they said, was the greatest baseball player who ever played the game. Now, I, I never saw Willie Mays play, uh, but my dad did. My dad did, and my dad said that he saw Willie Mays play in the polo grounds in New York City. When Willie Mays started out for the New York Giants as a rookie at 20 years of age in 1951, and he played for the New York Giants there, and the manager of that team was Leo DeRocher. Maybe you remember Leo DeRocher. He was not a nice guy. He famously said, nice guys finish last, right? He had this shrill voice, and you could hear his voice all over the, the stadium. And in those days, the manager would not only manage the team, but would also coach third base and stand in the third base coaching box. And Willie Mays said that when I was a rookie, Leo DeRocher would just ride me mercilessly. And from the third base coaching box, you know, he would give the signs what to do, and then he would just be talking the whole time while I was up to bat, said Willie. And just with this shrill voice, he kept just yelling at me, come on, Willie, come on, Willie. And Mays said, how could I fail? How could I fail? I mean, there was such encouragement. There was such belief in me. So let me ask you tonight, is there anybody here tonight who, who, who hears that voice, who hears a voice? You know, that, that voice of the one who went before and ran the race and perfected it and won it and modeled it for us. Can you hear it? Come on, Bob. Come on. Come on, Susan. Whatever your name is, do you hear it? Fixing your eyes on Jesus. Looking to that author and perfecter of our faith. I'll tell you, he's cheering you on. 
He is this one who endured such opposition himself so that you would not grow weary, so that you would not lose heart. And there he is cheering you on. I hope you could hear it. And I hope you're straining forward, looking at that pillar, running a race with the weights off and leaning into it. One more thing, then we're done. We, we said, what are we doing? Running the race with, with perseverance. How are we doing it? Well, we're taking the weights off and we're fixing our eyes. And then one more thing by way of motivation, and that is why are we doing this? Why? Well, it goes back to the very first phrase. It says, seeing that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, then let us run our race. Surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. That is, those people who have gone before us. You know, those people who are saints, as it were, in the grandstand of the stadium as we enter in, and they're looking, and they're observing, and they're cheering, surrounded as we enter into that stadium and the marathon race toward the end and the last mile and in we come and the people in the stadium stand up and cheer surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now I always wondered when I read that, I read it many times, I always wondered, you know, how really literally can we take that? You know, surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. I mean, do you think literally that your parents and your grandparents and the heroes of faith and so on, those who have preceded us in this race, I mean, do you think they can really see us? I mean, I've always wondered that, you know. Do you think they can really see us and look at us and observe us and sort of cheer us on? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I guess I think it's kind of dangerous to kind of hang a teaching like that on one little phrase here, you know, in Hebrews 12 or so on. So I don't know. But nevertheless, I, I think that the truth is there. There are those people, there are, who have preceded us as if witnesses. They've lived their life, they've run their race. They set a Christian example. They modeled it for us. They prayed for us, so on. And they're the saints who are in the grandstand who cheer us on. I don't know, have you, have you, ever, have you ever done a sporting event in front of a great crowd of people? Anybody do, do something like that? You know, as, as a kid, I always wondered. You know, well, I, of course, I wanted to play shortstop for the Yankees. That's what, all I wanted to do. I just wanted to be the shortstop for the Yankees. And that went to Derek Jeter, but oh well. Uh, but I always dreamed about what it would be like, you know, to come up to bat, and there's a crowd of 60,000 people, right, all standing up, and there's a, there's a runner on third base, and there's two outs, and, and I'm standing there, staring down the pitcher, and everybody's wondering, how is it going to end, and cheering, and so on. Now, obviously, that never worked out for me. That never happened with that, that amount of people. The best I could do was, was to play basketball at a homecoming game in front of a couple hundred people. You know, how about you? Ever done anything in, in front of a bunch of people, you know, 200 or 500 or 1,000 people, and they're all kind of watching you? Well, they are now. They are right now. Whatever your race is, 
your battle with disease or body weakness or aging or loneliness or anxiety or relational conflict, whatever your race is, they're watching you. They are. These cloud of witnesses cheering us on. There's Paul. And there's Peter. And Jim Elliott. And Nate Saint. And those other missionaries who were slaughtered in the Kirai River in Ecuador in the 1950s. Other martyrs of the Christian faith. Those Coptic Christians along the coast of the Mediterranean who were beheaded by ISIS. Little children in Iraq who are taken out of their homes and sold or killed. Christians today in Iran and Syria and Sudan. Your grandfather, your husband, your spouse. As I said, they lived their life. They expressed their faith. They modeled it for us. They prayed for us. And, and I'm telling you, the best way that we can honor them the best way that we can honor them is to become the people that they prayed for us to be. You want to honor them? Then you become the person that they prayed for. Seeing that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with perseverance. So, last word is this, right? Consider him who endured such opposition himself so that you do not grow weary or lose heart. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, please come close to us tonight. Through Jesus Christ, cheer us on as we continue to live for you in a, in a world that is so opposed to you, that is so indifferent, so many enemies, so many struggles personally. Refresh our minds with the history and the story of our Lord Jesus and his opposition. May it encourage us tonight and strengthen us for the living of these days. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. I think we're going to sing Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, which is, I think, a good one to sing. <laughs>